11 as we continue in this great chapter. Now, it's vacation time, and uh, makes me think about one of the syndromes that I suffer from, and some of you may as well when you go on vacation, men especially, where uh, you have to get to your destination as soon as possible with as few interruptions or delays as can be afforded. Amen. Amen. Men, raise your hands. Who suffers from, maybe some women too, I don't know. But that's how it was, and, and I was really bad about that, and the only thing that, that cured me of that was when the kids got potty trained, because all of a sudden there was something more important than arriving <laughs> on time. But I would love to one day, maybe some of you have done this, you can teach me how, I would love to, when going to a vacation, granted you need extra time and money, which is always a problem, but schedule several stops along the way to stop in here, see this, I've never seen it, or to go to this place because I've always wanted to go there, and take our time getting to that final destination. And I illustrate this because that's what John does in, in his chapter 11. So far, what we've seen John is, do is have these large sections of narrative followed by a large section of teaching, of discourse. But in John 11, he intertwines that method so that we make these intentional stops along the way. We know the destination. The destination is the raising of Lazarus, right? And we're not even going to get there today, and it's our, it's our second week in John 11. But John intentionally takes the time for Jesus to have these encounters with certain groups of people to teach us these very important theological principles that have to do with the gospel and our need for salvation. So last week, it was with the disciples. Today, with Lazarus' two sisters, both Martha and Mary. And so last week, if you weren't with us, the first 16 verses, we talked about the glory of God in and through Jesus Christ. John eleven four is the key to understanding the big picture of what is behind this miracle. We talked about, if you remember, that the road to Calvary ran through Bethany, that this miracle was a sign of something greater, and that something greater was the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ himself. We talked about that. The best is yet to come. And today, as we've already uh, heard during the Lord's Supper and experienced through the Lord's Supper, the title of this week's sermon, The Resurrection and the Life, the fifth of the seven great I Am statements in this passage. And, and so now we, we drill down a little bit further, get a little more specific. The glory of God in and through Jesus Christ as his death, burial, and resurrection allows for our salvation, for for our resurrection from the dead, which is also, again, part of this great sign of the, the miracle concerning Lazarus. And here's the big idea. Here's the, the sermon in a sentence for this week. Today, Jesus declares himself to be the Father's appointed means for eliminating sin's curse, death, and giving life to those who place their trust in him. In him. So, Go ahead, if you haven't already, and turn your Bibles to John 11, John chapter 11. And one of the things I wanted to do today is bring out some of these great passages that we've already studied that, as Danny said, find the fulfillment in this week's passage. He read one from John 5. Here's another one up on the screen from John chapter 6. And this is Jesus giving commentary on another I am statement when he said, I am the bread of life. He says this, and this is the will of him who sent me, the Father, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up 
on the last day. So as we approach today's passage and we continue, look at verse 17 for a moment. Before we read through our passage, look at verse 17. This hit me this week. One of the days I was studying, I read this verse and had one of those interactive moments with Scripture to worship. And I want to share that with you here. Because again, if this miracle of Lazarus, if the ultimate fulfillment, one of the ultimate fulfillments and signs of it is, is our salvation, right? We can put our name in this. Look at John 17. When Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had been in the tomb four days. When Jesus came to each one of us who are in Christ now, he found us in the exact same state, dead. And as I read this this week, I, in my mind, replaced his name with mine. And I read it like this. When Jesus came, isn't it a great thing, by the way, when Jesus comes? Amen. When Jesus came, he found Ted had already been in the tomb 21 years. The, the scripture allows for us to interactively worship and, and apply this great gospel to our lives as well. So I just want to share that with you. We're going to go ahead and read it now and get into the sermon. And we'll talk more about that next week when we actually get to the raising of Lazarus. But what a beautiful picture right there of the grace of God. So continuing, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So a few observations here in this first part. The four days is actually very important. In fact, it might, it might explain why Jesus delayed two days in last week's passage, and that is this. The Jews believed by day four of someone being dead, they were dead. There was both practical and superstitious beliefs attached to this. On the practical side, Anyone that's seen maybe one of these uh, lore history shows on, on History Channel or something, you know the Saved by the Bell, the Dead Ringer, how sometimes people would be buried that weren't really dead. And if you were wealthy enough, you could have a, a bell attached from inside the coffin, well, the string, and then the bell would be up in the ground. And so the person, the night watch, could hear the bell ring. Oh, we buried somebody that actually wasn't dead. That, that did happen. And, and, and similarly here, sometimes people were buried that weren't really dead. So... There was a belief in this Jewish culture that for the first three days, loved ones needed to return to the tomb regularly just in case that would happen. And then on the superstitious side, there was also a belief that was related to that, um, that a loved one's uh, who died, a loved one's soul hovered around for three days, but day four, they were really dead. So it's possible that Jesus is waiting here to day four just so everybody knows when this miracle happens, they can't explain it by any other superstitious or, or traditional means. So I think that's really interesting, really important for us uh, to see that. So that's important with the four days. Bethany, we've talked about that, about two miles off. 
a little less than two miles from Jerusalem. And John includes that to let us know why there were so many Jews here. So uh, this crowd of Jews comes from Jerusalem to console the two sisters. And that was the, the sacred and expected duty of a good Jew. Not just to come and, and visit for an hour or two, but to spend days mourning with and consoling uh, the loved ones who just lost somebody. So that's important. We're going to talk about this crowd. Make a mental note. The Lazarus crowd will come into play very significantly later on in chapter 12. So just file that back somewhere in your mind. And so we see uh, Martha somehow finds out, maybe Jesus sent one of the disciples, that he had not yet come into the city. And so Martha comes out to speak to him. So now we get this first episode with the first of the two sisters. One other note to make here before we look at her conversation with Jesus is how Martha and Mary are characterized in this passage is exactly how we see them characterized at the end of Luke chapter 10, when we see that encounter there as well, which is very, very significant to see that correspondence between two separate gospel accounts. Uh, pretty neat. By the way, last week I, I, I referred to it as John 10. I made a mistake. I heard it this week. But it's at the end of Luke 10 that we actually meet Martha and Mary for the first time. So let's look at this conversation. Starting in verse 21, uh, we see Martha with this confession of faith that's couched in regret. Now, when I used to read this in the past, I used to mistakenly think that Jesus delayed for two days on purpose, like waiting around for Lazarus to die. But we know now that wasn't the case. Lazarus was probably already dead by the time Jesus got that message. So because of that misreading, when I read this, I thought Martha was complaining that Jesus had delayed, but that's not the case. This is actually a confession of faith. And in today's passage, John has this reference to what people thought about Jesus's ability to heal three times. And it's intentional. It's, it's preparing us for the miracle of Lazarus raising. So here's the first time Martha is confessing faith. Now, is she, is she sad? Yes. Does she regret that Jesus just didn't happen to be there? Is there maybe even a little tinge of, man, you're too late? You're too late. But it's obviously a confession of faith. She believed, she had a category already for Jesus' ability to heal the sick. That's as far as it went, I believe. Now, as we continue, this next verse is very important because I read this wrong for years as well. Because right after she says that, she says, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And I always assumed, and you may have as well, that Martha had a category for Jesus being able to raise the dead and was kind of hinting at that here. And that's not what's happening. How do we know that? A couple reasons, but the biggest one is when we get to verse 39 next week, who is it that protests the rolling away of the stone but Martha? She says, no, don't roll that stone away. He's been dead four days. It's going to smell really bad. So obviously she can't be saying that now. And the scholars that I studied uh, what they're saying is this is a general category. She just um, said something regretful, like, Jesus, man, you're too late. I wish you had been here. My brother would still be alive. So quickly, she wanted to make sure that, that Jesus knew that she still trusted him in the big picture. She trusted him uh, with these things. And in fact, uh, Beasley Murray, uh, one of the theologians I studied, says this. He says, at this point, she affirms her continued confidence in the power of Jesus' intercession for all the eventuality. So that's what's happening there. And then look what Jesus says next. All of these things are very important in this conversation. Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. Now, is Jesus talking about the miracle he's about to perform or the resurrection on the last day? 
For John, it has to be both. But he's definitely thinking and referring to the miracle that's about to happen. But look how Martha takes his words. She said to him, yes, yes, I know that he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. She assumes that Jesus is consoling her like all these other individuals were that day. Just saying something really nice. You know how you've been at a a funeral and it's kind of hard to find the right words? She takes it for that and she's like, yes, yes, I know that he will be. In fact, what she says there is textbook, old covenant, orthodox belief in the resurrection, represented by the Pharisee party. It's kind of like, it was like their John 3.16. She gives that, that memorized response of faith. But friends, there were a lot of people there that day to console Martha and Mary, but Jesus was not one of them. Jesus was there to do something far more spectacular in raising their brother back to life. But what I love here is this transition from verse 24 to 25. She essentially says, yes, I know the resurrection will take place then, in the future. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection now. Powerful. Don't miss the power from verse 24 to 25. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he he die, yet shall he live. Now, it almost seems like we have two I am statements in here. And yes, I did say this is one of those uh, seven great I am statements in John. And what makes it different is you and I see just one I am in the English, but in the Greek, there's two I ams. It's a go, a me. It's I am, I am. All right, if you're having a conversation in ancient uh, Israel, when Koine Greek was being spoken, you would not talk like that. You wouldn't write your term paper like that. So this is intentional. Again, uh, John's presenting Jesus as Yahweh. Because again, go back to the burning bush with Moses. What was the, the covenant name for Israel? I am that I am. Now for our sake here, and, it, and I've skipped over the, the name of the point for this first section, but Jesus is the giver of life. He's both the giver of life and the destroyer of death. And you have both of those corresponding parallel realities represented together in this incredible statement. I am the resurrection and I am the life. They're not synonymous, but they're parallel and related. And what's really exciting is in this verse, in these next couple verses, we get an explanation for each of them. Look again at the text. That first clause that follows uh, after verse 25, actually part of verse 25, that corresponds to resurrection. So what does Jesus mean by I am the resurrection? He means this, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, the destroyer of death. And then what does Jesus mean by I am the life? It's in the next clause. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Shall never die. We'll talk about the destroyer of death part in the next section. But friends, Jesus is the giver of eternal life. All that we know in this life is death. It's inevitable. Who has never died on this planet? Death is everywhere we look. It's in everything. Even the seasons of the year, we see death. We see a planet cursed, functioning in brokenness. Whether, again, it's creation or whether it's humankind, all over. It's not as it was meant to be. And so our God enters into his very creation to undo the curse brought on by Adam. And he himself become the second 
greater and last Adam, that all who are in him have life. That's what salvation is. That's what the gospel is all about. And we see it come to this beautiful, beautiful climax right here. But it gets even better. Look what he asks her at the end of verse 26. Do you believe this? Jesus' salvation, this this great thing that he did on the cross and through defeating death and the resurrection is not universal, right? Universalism is heresy. The idea that this applies to everybody, so everybody's going to heaven. That is not the case. And we know that because of this very question, which is the greatest question any human being could ever be asked. Do you believe? Do you believe? It's important, again, that we understand that English word believe isn't like how we use it. You know, do you believe your favorite team will win the national championship? Well, I hope so. You know, it's not that kind of belief. The word here in the Greek is evoking a personal trust in something or someone that even costs you to turn away from something else. A 180, think of 180 degrees, and it's, it's always connected with repentance, this repentance and faith, this repentance and faith. If we think in terms of the Old Testament, um, what does it mean? Like we talk about being in Christ, what, what is something that we should have been in in the Old Testament if we wanted to survive a destructive flood? Being in the ark, right? That's what personal trust is. That's what this belief is. I'm going to leave everything and go to this one spot because it's the only way I'm going to survive the coming destruction. Jesus Christ is the true ark, the better ark, and many other things that we could talk about. But look at Martha's response. This is great. Her, her response here isn't simply yes. It's yes, but look at the content of her response. In her content, not only does she address him as Lord, again, full intention of, of the fact that he was the Messiah, but she affirms three of the great old covenant titles for the the Messiah, right? Look at this. I believe that you are the Christ, the anointed one. I believe that you are the son of God, and I believe you are the coming one. That refers to Deuteronomy 18 and Moses' prophecy about a prophet who would come, the coming one, who, who is greater than me. In fact, you might remember when John the Baptist sends some of his disciples in Matthew to ask Jesus, are you the one to come. It's an official title, the coming one. What a statement of faith. She believes and has placed her trust in Jesus. Look at this quote by Leon Morris up on the screen in terms of Jesus being uh, the great I am here. He says, this statement by Jesus transcends the Pharisaic view of a remote resurrection at the end of time. It means that the moment we put our trust in Jesus, we begin to experience that life of the age to come, eternal life, which cannot, underline that in your minds, which cannot be touched by death. Cannot be touched by death. So before we go to Jesus as the destroyer of death, a few application uh, topics here. First and foremost, the question goes before us all. Do you believe? I ask every one of you now, do you really believe in this glorious gospel? Have you placed your trust in Jesus Christ like one who would have left everything to get on that ark, that floating boat back then? One of the great parables that I love to to use when sharing what 
Uh, this type of belief is, is the parable of buried treasure. You might know that from one of the other gospels. I love it. The man goes and he finds treasure buried in a field. So what does he do next? He goes and sells everything he owns. That's repentance. Buys the field. Now guess what's his? The treasure. Beautiful, beautiful parable to help us understand this great truth of personal faith in Jesus. Also, I think one of the practical things we can take away from this is Martha gives us a great example of what it means to maintain hope. Hope is fragile. It's probably the most, one of the most fragile uh, attributes that we as Christians need, but yet it's so powerful for us if we can maintain that hope in Christ regardless of what happens around us. Paul was a good person who, who maintained this hope and often exhorted us to as well. But, but notice how Martha was disappointed, right? She was disappointed. How many of us, if we were to be honest, when, when tragedy strikes, when unexpected circumstances face us, or a loved one dies, much like Martha, uh, that we, you know, it's not that we stop loving God, but we get a little bit angry. We, we get a little, we question, God, why? How could you let this happen? Why weren't you there that day? And folks, if we allow ourselves to go and we lose hope and go down that road too far, we'll end up in some very, very bad places. Martha does not head all the way down that road. She recognizes it, but then quickly reaffirms her faith in Jesus Christ moving forward. Regardless of this circumstance, I still believe you. I'm still going to follow you. And I'm still going to trust that, that you're, you have my best interests at heart and you know what you're doing. And here's another uh, tool to give you in terms of, because again, we all struggle. Everyone in this room has either come out of something recently, is in the midst of something, or has got something coming up soon. Guaranteed. So another uh, book of the Bible that's been very helpful for me when I've gone through those times, I want to give to you so you can add it to the list. I gave you 1 Peter 5 last week. Another great one is Habakkuk. I love Habakkuk, because chapter one, Habakkuk's complaining about the circumstances that they're in. And Jesus finally, or God, yeah, it's still correct. God finally goes to Habakkuk and says, listen, man, if I even told you what I'm doing, you wouldn't understand. So I'm not. Just trust me. And then we get to the end of Habakkuk, and listen to what Habakkuk says at the end. He says, though, again, God's worked on his heart. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fall, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off, from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. By the way, for agricultural society, that's like doomsday. Listen to what Habakkuk says. If all, that thing, if all those things were to happen to our crops and our animals, yet I rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. That's what Martha's doing here, and she gives us a great example for how to maintain hope even in difficult times. One last application, and this is very practical, um, we've experienced death here in this congregation this year, some of our, our family here, and it's a tough thing. And, and we've all been to funerals. We'll go to more. And it can be very difficult when you and I go to express our love to that individual who's lost somebody. It can be very difficult to know what to say, right? When, when folks receive friends or you go to their home after the funeral. And one of the things I want to encourage you on, when, when you come to those moments, try to remember this in that moment, it's not about what you say. Don't feel like you have to come up with the right things to say. I mean, there are some great things that you can say, but don't feel that pressure. 
when a person is going through that grieving process, the most important thing is that you're there, that your presence is there in their life. And these Jews would come and spend days simply just sitting with the individual mourning, and that's it. In the chaplaincy, we call this the ministry of presence, the ministry of presence, your presence there in that individual's life in those initial moments, and then even uh, for the days to come is so, so important. So just remember that. It's not always what you say, but the fact that you're going to be there with them. All right, so let's look at the second and final section of today's passage as we get to interact now with Mary. We've interacted with Martha. We're going to interact with Mary, and I entitled this The Destroyer of Death. I want to bring out an aspect of Jesus's mission that we don't always think about. But first, again, in keeping with our, our looking through some of the earlier passages in John, here's a great short verse from John 8, 51 that I'm sure you remember. Jesus says there, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Never see death. Okay, let's go to the text, picking back up in verse 28. When she, that's Martha, had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, that's Mary, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were were with her in the house consoling her, again that group, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, she'd be going to the tomb, but she would not be weeping anymore. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some, some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? So uh, again, Martha goes and gets Mary. You might say, well, why did Jesus want to, you know, why did Jesus stay outside of the town? Why did he not go into Bethany? Why didn't he come to their house? And, and my opinion is he wanted to uh, stay away from the commotion that's caused by the morning, Right? If you remember back in Mark 5 when he raised Jairus' daughter, he didn't seem to be a big fan of those professional whalers who are out just carrying on and making all this commotion. So he's, he's staying back from that. In fact, uh, the uh, Mishnah, the Hebrew or Jewish rabbinical tradition, uh, instructed that every Jew, when, when their loved one died, had to hire two flute players and one woman who was a professional whaler. Even poor families had to. So there's this commotion going on of authentic and yet staged grieving, and he wanted to stay away from that and have a private conversation with these two women who he dearly loved and was very, very close to. So nonetheless, she finally comes out, um, and, and the crowd follows as well. And then we see in verse 32, this is really amazing, we, we get to meet Mary three times in the New Testament, three separate events, and all three times, where do we find her? at the feet of Jesus. Verse 32, she falls at his feet. She repeats exactly what Martha said. Here is her confession of faith, granted, couched in regret, that if you had been here, I know my brother would still be alive. Again, she had faith in his ability to keep people from dying, to heal the sick. 
And then this is where the heart of, of this part of the passage, this is where we have to understand the words here so much so to understand uh, such an important aspect of Jesus' mission as the Messiah. Verse 33, Jesus sees her and the crowd of people, the, the people who came to soul weeping. And that does something to Jesus. And we have to understand correctly the emotion that he experiences. In our English translations, I'm not sure what yours says, mine says deeply moved. And typically that's what the English translations will translate this Greek word, that they had you know, some, some sort of inner emotional sigh. He was moved in some way. But that, my friends, violates the Greek word here. The Greek word here means infuriated, extremely angry. The word was used in its original uh, means whenever a horse would get agitated. Anyone ever been around a horse when they get agitated? I have not, but I've been around a camel. I had this eight-month associate pastor that was like Twilight Zone. I'll tell you more about it sometime. But they had this animal ministry where they had these live animals on the property, and they used them twice a year for the passion play and the Christmas play. And they had a camel. It's one of the one-humpers. I can't remember what they're called. It starts with a D. Anyways, as a good associate pastor, I thought, you know, I want to get familiar with the ministries that I don't have anything to do with. So I asked the lady who was caretaker of these animals. They had goats, they had sheep, they had a horse if I could hang out one summer and help her feed them and stuff like that. And of course, she trained me and warned me about the camel, that they have a little bit of an attitude problem. So I was doing everything I was trained to, and I was on the far side of the camel pen cleaning something up, and that thing all of a sudden did not like me. And it got, it was a full-size adult camel, got on its hind legs and had the front two like this, and I'm like five feet away. And it was, I can still visualize it. It must have been 20 feet tall in my mind. And I was scared to death. So that's what this word means, what that camel and typically what a horse was experiencing. And when applied to a human, it always meant greatly infuriated or agitated. D.A. Carson translates this word outraged. Jesus is outraged in this moment. And for whatever reason, I could spend 20 minutes talking about it. I'm not going to. Why the English translation tradition chose to go that route. But we have to be faithful to the text. The reason why most people think the English translations took a softer verb is because they couldn't imagine that Jesus would be angry with people grieving or mourning a lost one. And that is true. I believe that it's their sadness and their brokenness over the death of Lazarus that has brought about the outrage in Jesus' soul, but that outrage is not directed at them. It's directed at somebody else who we'll get to here in a moment. But it's important for us to, to see that he is having this reaction. He is outraged. He is greatly troubled. And the way I believe we need to understand this, is remember, Jesus is God. He's the second person of the Trinity. We know from this very book, chapter one, as well as Hebrews and Colossians, that Jesus was there on the day of creation. He is the creator so from his point of view, at that moment, as creator, knowing full well how it was all supposed to be before sin, he's standing there. It's, it wasn't supposed to be like this. This isn't what I had, the, the triune God had had in the plan for creation and specifically for the creation of those made in his image. That's the understanding. And imagine that, or think of the movie or the book you read where the hero arrives on the scene at that climatic moment where 
the innocent people or his loved ones, is being, they're being afflicted by the villain. That's the scene we have here. The hero has arrived. Here are these people he loves, afflicted by the villain. And who is the villain but death? Imagine death in the background of this scene, however you want to personify death, standing there laughing for the millionth time over the tragedy and horror he has caused in the life of these people. And we know death is the curse of sin. Jesus had come to do battle with death, who Paul calls the last enemy to be defeated. Death will ultimately be defeated on the last day when we all who are in Christ take part in that resurrection. But here, Jesus is days away from dying on a Roman cross to gloriously and in amazing fashion rise from the grave. He had come to do battle and he was gonna win. And I just imagine Jesus there shaking, hands clenched as we see, weeping, He could not contain the emotion that was controlling him because of, one, his love for these people whom he had come to save, who were made in his image and were trapped and imprisoned by sin and death, and then, two, the outrage he had towards death, whose rule had gone on long enough, but that was about to end. Jesus Christ is the destroyer of death, our greatest enemy as humans. Here's what D.A. Carson says, especially about the Jesus wept verse. Everyone's favorite a want a verse, right? To get the candy. Yeah, I can. I got some verses to memorize. Jesus wept. Ding. Got one. Right. Sorry, I had to bring you guys up for air a little bit. But let's look at this great quote by D.A. Carson. It is unreasonable to think that Jesus's tears were shed for Lazarus since he knew he was about to raise him from the dead. Rather, the same sin and death The same unbelief that prompted his outrage also generated his grief. And like the author of Hebrews says, we have a great high priest in Jesus. I think one of the greatest things about that short two-word verse is this. John's main mission in his whole gospel in terms of presenting Jesus Christ is so that you and I know he is Yahweh. He is, that's his mission. It's everywhere. He is the son of God. He is divine. And here in the midst of this, He also shows us he was truly human. And again, going back to Hebrews, we have a great high priest who can identify with all the things that we face in this earth, all the circumstances, all the brokenness. And he's overcome them and is now seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. So we now, like Martha, can affirm that same thing. This stinks, Lord. I don't like it but it has not shaken my faith and confidence in you. But we do see some people here who did not understand. Verse 36, one, one, of the, one side of the group said, oh, see how he loved Lazarus? They assumed he was there regretting that he didn't come in time either. They had no idea what he was getting ready to do. And the other group even doubted whether he could have done anything at all. You see here that by this time, Jesus had become known as the man who healed the blind man. And John, he's always known for his last greatest miracle. At one point, he was uh, the man who healed the lame man. And then now we see him as the one who opened the eyes of the blind. Later, soon, we'll see him as the one who raised Lazarus from the dead. And what do we know Jesus Christ as today? The one who died on the cross and rose from the empty tomb. He's always known for his last greatest miracle. 
So we come to the end of the passage this week, but I encourage you, come back next week if you're in town to see the conclusion of this chapter as we finally get to the raising of Lazarus. But for now, let's turn our attention to a little bit of application. Uh, this past year, you guys know my stepmom passed away, and, uh, and it was sad. In fact, I'm still getting used to it. The other day, I was like, oh, i got to call Carolyn up. I haven't talked to her in a while. I was like, oh, wait, she's, she's gone. Um, and while it's been sad, I really didn't grieve too much because, one, she's far away, um, so I didn't see her a lot. But most importantly, she's a believer in Christ. She's one of the few people in my family that knew the Lord. And she had been suffering with cancer for four years, so I was really excited that just to think she's now with Jesus. And that's the hope that we have. When our loved ones and friends who uh, know the Lord, who were saved when they pass away, although it's sad and we have to go through that mourning process at different uh, levels, depending on, on how they were close to us, we have this truth. And Paul reminds us of this truth, this hope that we have here in First Thessalonians. Read this with me. Paul writes there, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Someday that verse will refer to each of us. Unless the Lord comes back in our lifetime, we will be part of that. And that's an exciting thing that we can take to the bank. That's what hope is, certainty in the promises of God. Here's another slide that helps us out because here are those promises. I love Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 is one of my favorite passages because it reminds us of all the things we have in Christ. There's like 11 prepositional phrases, I think, or even more, in him, in Christ. Here's the four big ones that outline the passage for us, that this is why we can rejoice. This is why we can have hope, regardless of what happens in this life. Look at these. In him, we have been chosen and adopted. Chosen and adopted. In him, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We've been rescued from that which condemned us to eternal hell. In him, we have an internal inheritance. There's that life, that eternal life, and all that comes with being with God forever. And then the fourth one, in him, we have been given the Holy Spirit. And as Paul describes there, which is the first fruits, it's a, it's a sign of the guarantee, a claim ticket that one day we will get it all when we go to be with the Lord, and especially on that last day when all who have believed in Christ are resurrected, given new bodies, and, gone, and sent into the new kingdom, the new heavens, the new earth. So just some great promises to share with you. This is how I process when I go through brokenness. I remember passages like this. I'm reminded about what we have and what we still have. Even if you lose everything like Job, what we still have in Christ is, is priceless and is so much greater than anything we have to lose in this life. So I want to share that with you. Second, I want to give you a homework assignment for those of you, well, actually for everyone, whether they're going to be here next week or not. Take some time in the course of your Bible reading this week and read 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is the great chapter on the, res all the resurrection from every angle and every aspect of it. So please take some time to read that. If you say, man, I need more. I need more than just one chapter. Well, for those of you advanced students, I guess, you can read Romans 6 through 8, because that would be an incredible preparation text as well. So take some time to read one or both of these great passages this week, 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans 6 through 8. Third thing, 
Mary, she gives us this great example, right? We see her three different times in the New Testament. And as I said, every time we see her at Jesus's feet. You want to know what the glory of God is for those of us who believed? It's the, the greatest thing that we can do to bring about his glory. It's not what we do for, not just what we do for him. Mostly, it's us spending time with him, treasuring him, loving him, and just learning everything we can about this great Savior of ours. And Mary gives us a great example of that. If you, learn, if you look at Luke 10, when she's at Jesus' feet there, it's the posture of learning. Are you a student of God's word? Are you a student of who this God of ours is? Be at his feet to learn. In Matthew 26, as well as John 12, which we'll get to, in fact, Robert will preach that in a couple weeks, she's anointing his feet. She's adoring him. She's worshiping Jesus, she's sacrificing the most expensive thing she had on this earth, that, that alabaster flask, that ointment, and she's worshiping him. Again, that's how we glorify God, spending time with him and being most satisfied in who he is, not just what he can do for us. And then finally, we see her today at his feet, mourning. We have a God who is a coming down kind of God. We have a God who wants to be there on our worst days when we're so broken that all we can do is crumble at his feet and cry. We have a God who will be there in those moments as well. And Mary gives us a great example of that also. And in all of this, don't forget that when Christ saves us, he designs us to be in community. We need to be with one another. If you notice, Jesus was her Messiah, but he was also a friend that she could go to. And I said this last week, I'll say it again. Don't go through the tough stuff by yourself. You're not designed to. It's going to get worse. Let us know. Let your small group know. Uh, bring the church with you as you go through the brokenness because that's, that's how we're designed both as a church to function and as individuals to receive that one another grace as we, as we endure. So that brings us to the end of today's passage, today's sermon. I want to go ahead and invite the band to come back up. And as they are transitioning back up, as we end our time of worship today, I just want to once again make sure you know the invitation is open. The reality is every human being on the face of the earth is, only, is in one of two spots. They're covered by the blood of Christ or they're still in the sin they were born with. And that's true of everyone in this room as well. And so I say again, do you believe? And if not, you haven't failed the test today. It's okay. You're not going to get uh, you know, a D or an F on the report card. It's okay. We just simply want to share with you this gospel. We want to hear where you're at. We want to come alongside you because there's nothing more important. There's no question more important that we have to answer and answer with confidence. So if there's any doubt, come and track me down. Come and track Robert down. Come and talk to someone else here, whether it's today or any day this week. We will drop everything to come and have this conversation with you. Do you believe? Let's pray one more time. Father, thank you again for your grace. Thank you for your word. Thank you uh, just for uh, the word of God and, and the fact that you did not leave us without instruction. You did not leave us without guidance, but you inspired uh, your servants to write your inspired truth for us, both before the cross and in that first century with these 27 wonderful books of the New Testament. Thank you for John's account. Thank you for Martha. Thank you for Mary. Thank you for the human element that we see in this story where we can identify with these sisters 
and how they're both dealing and grieving at the loss of their brother. We can understand and identify with them in that struggle of doubting you because you've allowed something, but then that restored hope of continuing to trust you. And I know my friends here in this room, I know some specifically have had it very difficult recently and have gone through some incredibly challenging times, and I pray you continue to pour out your grace on them, make yourself known to them even more so than you already have. But for everyone in this room, whether it's today, tomorrow, or at the end of our life, we're going to have to face you in judgment. And I pray that everybody within the sound of my voice, when they do, will be your child. And the blood of Christ will pass over, or cover them so that your wrath passes over and we will all enter in together into life eternal. If there's anyone here who doesn't know you, Lord, I pray even today you would move to change that and bring them from death to life. Thank you that you are the giver of life and the destroyer of our greatest enemy, death. Let us leave here, those of us who are saved, with that confidence renewed and restored, regardless of what tomorrow has in store for us. We have you, and there's nothing greater to have because you have us. And it's in your name, Lord, I pray. Amen.